Department of Homeland Security's new system for recruiting cyber talent has been slow to get off the ground. It is starting to gain traction this year. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is using it more and more. And one other DHS component is set to join CISA. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's start with what the basics are of this hiring program. And it sounds like it involves hiring authorities. That's right. It's called the Cyber Talent Management System. It was launched by DHS back in 2021. Essentially, it is a system that is exempt from many of the federal government's traditional hiring, classification, and compensation practices. Hires under the system, people who are hired under the system, can make a salary as high as the vice president's in some cases. But the system has been slow to gain traction. DHS had a goal of filling 150 positions when it first launched the system back in 2021 within its first year. CISA has only hired about 80 people now that we're about a year and a half in using the cyber talent management system. So it's gotten off to a slow start, but it is ramping up. 80 people is more than the last update we got, which was only about two people last spring. So they've made some traction here over the last year. How do they plan to ramp it up even more then? Well, CISA Director Jen Easterly testified before the House Homeland Security Committee last week, and she said that CISA is just hiring a lot of people in general. Uh, They hired 516 people last year. And they plan to hire even more here in 2023. The majority of those hires are still coming under the Title V traditional personnel system. But Easterly says they want to use CTMS more aggressively this year. Actually implementing it has been something that's been a real project that we've continuously had to look at how it's working and ensure it truly streamlines our ability to bring on more talent. We continue to use our Title V authorities, uh, our normal authorities, to bring on talent. We are hoping to use CTMS more aggressively this year. And again, that's CISA Director Jen Easterly. She actually also she also mentioned that one person they've hired through CTMS recently is going to lead a new counter China office at CISA. And, you know, CISA is an agency that's growing pretty quickly. They're standing up a lot of these new offices. They're going to be looking for some talented people from the private sector to come in and lead those offices. So CTMS could be a solution there. All right. That's CISA. What about the rest of DHS? You said that uh, some other ones might be looking at this and saying, hmm, let's get into the pond here, too. That's right. The Federal Emergency Management Agency was recently granted the authority to start using CTMS. Previously, it had only been CISA and the DHS Office of the Chief Information Officer. So now it's moving more broadly to the other components at DHS. FEMA is really considering how it can offer higher salaries to retain its existing cyber workforce as well. FEMA CIO Charles Armstrong recently spoke at an AFCIA Bethesda breakfast about the CTMS process. So we're taking advantage of uh, new things like the cyber talent management system. It's a rigorous process. It's not quite as easy as just hiring a regular employee. There's a lot of deep dive into what their skill sets are, lots of interviews. So it's much more rigorous, but the idea is that you get a higher talent quality of employee. And what has been the reaction to the fact that it is still relatively slow? 
I've heard this from other federal managers that a lot of the hiring authorities for procurement or cybersecurity, this is busting out all over government, but it can still take six months to get someone actually on board. So what are you hearing about that, Justin? Yeah, lawmakers are in the phase of asking questions about why this is taking so long. Andrew Garbarino, the Republican from New York, who is the chairman of the House Homeland Security Cybersecurity Subcommittee, said it's been, quote unquote, painfully slow in terms of the rollout of CTMS so far. And this comes as the federal government is just struggling to hire and retain cyber talent in general. Officials have acknowledged that there are vacancies, there are gaps. They've looked to CTMS to help fill those. But as Charlie Armstrong, the FEMA CIO uh, we just heard from mentioned, it's still a pretty rigorous process too. You've got to do a lot of interviews and ask a lot of questions of these folks to make sure that they weren't getting into the CTMS in the first place. So that's kind of where it's at right now. Plus, they have to have security clearance, and they can't be overly eager to hire just anybody because look what happened to the National Guard, the Air National Guard recently. Someone trusted, new, young, turned out to be a horrible person and gave away, you know, the secrets we're all, the whole nation is now struggling to live with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mentioned how CTMS allows DHS to do kind of an end around on, on some of the hiring practices, some of the Title V competitive hiring practices. But of course, that does not include the security clearance process, the vetting process to make someone is suitable for a federal government trusted position. So you can't get around that process, uh, no matter what hiring authority you're using for these sensitive positions. And this is a Homeland Security departmental program. So is this going to maybe be a model for the government's general cyber plans, or is it not showing all that much promise yet. That remains to be seen. There's a couple bigger picture items that are moving above this at the same time. First is that there is a new government-wide pay model that the Office of Personnel Management has approved, a special salary rate specifically for federal IT and cybersecurity employees that will allow agencies across government, not just DHS, to pay those positions a little bit more money. So that could be seen as potentially a a competing program with CTMS. And then the Office of the National Cyber Director is working on a national cyber workforce strategy right now on the heels of the national cyber strategy that was just released. That workforce strategy is expected to be out later this fall. That could answer some more questions about how federal agencies should be approaching the cyber workforce going forward. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.